Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke to Alice Fishburne, the editor of the FT Weekend magazine at the newspaper's offices in London. I give her a massive promotion in the opening moments of the show when I um, describe her as the editor of the FT Weekend, um, but rectify that by talking more about how uh, the magazine uh, itself fits into all the FT's offerings and also how it fits into the wider ecosystem of magazine journalism, both here and across the Atlantic. In particular, we discussed a couple of recent stories with her, uh, one about peanut allergies and the other about the potential impact of uh, automation on long distance truck drivers. Both those pieces are a lot more fascinating than they sound. And in particular, I loved the um, opening of the peanut allergy piece that is incredibly heartrending. We'll put links to both those pieces in the show notes um, beneath, the, um, beneath the episode on iTunes. And we, we really hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. I'm here in a wonderful office at the FT Weekend with uh, Alice Fishburne, who is the editor of the FT Weekend. And uh, ooh, I'm the editor of the FT Weekend magazine. FT Weekend magazine. You just promoted me up several levels. <laughs> <laughs> with Alice Fishburne, editor of the FT Weekend magazine, not the FT Weekend. And we just wanted to um, talk to you a little bit about your career thus far. Yeah, can you... Um just start out by telling us how you got your entry into journalism and how you made your way to the FT and then to what you're doing at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, I started doing journalism in college, really. I went to a university where there was a college newspaper and I did about two days there and absolutely loathed it. <laughs> and then stumbled across this slightly renegade magazine that was being published across a bunch of colleges in America where I was. And loved it. It was really scrappy. We basically had no idea what we were doing, but I just really enjoyed the combination of visuals and longer form pieces and writers coming in from all over the country. And I did that in college. And then after college, I thought, I'll try and pursue this. And I managed to get a equivalent of a graduate traineeship. It wasn't called that, but at Newsweek in New York, which I did for a year. Uh, then I went to grad school brief sideline um, and then I moved back to the UK and was lucky enough to be taken on at the Times on their comment desk at the time I was managing their online blogs Danny Finkelstein had Comment Central I don't know if any of you remember that but it was really pioneering I mean it was when blogs were just starting out and it was before the paywall it had a huge readership and it was great fun actually it was brilliant training and I then sort of hopscotched around the Times for three or four years I was in the newsroom for a bit on the comment desk for a bit Eventually ended up at Eureka, which was their science magazine, which was just lovely and much lamented, sadly, as no more. And that taught me a lot about being in a magazine environment, about presentation, about really selling long form pieces on particularly arcane subjects. In that case, it was all science. So it was some very, very naughty stuff. Um, but how you sell that to a popular audience. And then from there, I was hired into FT Weekend Mag um, seven years ago, I think as the, as Sumathias's deputy and have been here ever since and when she left about two years ago I took over um it's a great place to be just a couple of, of follow-ups to that so are you British but you went to university in the states I am British yes okay but yeah. you, you went to college in the US confusingly okay yes. that makes that makes more sense so we've heard a little bit about how um you've kind of came to the FT was it somewhere that you'd wanted to work for a long time was it something that had been in your radar or was it just that you know a, an opening came up 
Um, I mean, an opening came up and that was, I don't think I would have applied to work here beforehand because for one thing, I'm not a corporate reporter and I'd never had any real business reporting experience. I'd been a general news reporter, um, but nothing financial. But I'd always admired it. I mean, I think that the FT has an amazing, amazing breadth of international reporters. We've got correspondents all over the place and our international reporting is is just great. And I'd seen that as an outsider. Um, and I'd also seen, you know, some of the long form stuff they'd been doing mm. and they were relaunching the magazine at that point. And I thought it was a really exciting opportunity to. And to did the magazine something. call to you because of that first initial experience where you'd sort of thought about um, where you initially became attracted to journalism? Yeah, I think so. I think I've never really lost that slightly mad, chaotic college deadline mentality. I'm sure that some of my team wish that I had. <laughs> but I think that there is something about that. I mean, I do think that magazines, because you have the visual aspect as well as the words and all of the other digital, etc. components of our age, you get all of that. And it's great. And I've always loved that. And the FT offered me a fantastic opportunity. I'm really glad I took it. And following on from Cassia's question, where does the... Um, the magazine kind of fit into the broader package that the paper has, both with the, the, the news coverage and within the, the weekend paper in particular with books and arts and so forth? Well, FT Weekend is a bit of a different beast to the daily paper. I mean, the audiences are actually quite different. There is some overlap, obviously, but they are substantially different audiences. Um, and the magazine, I mean, we like to think of it as being an integral part of FT Weekend. It gives us an opportunity to really run long-form stuff most of the the long form pieces there's obviously the lunch interview in life and arts and then there's our cover and our second feature and those are the big the big ones um i think that it's very popular online as well with the weekday audience as well as the weekend audience people save our articles to read them they like the fact that it's often reporters that they know from the daily paper but going deeper into a subject that they already know very very well um and yeah we get good figures really um to just a sort of a follow-up question to that you talked about the difference between the readership for um the week and the weekend offerings could you sort of describe the difference between the flavor i mean is there a different flavor or is it just sort of is it by design or by accident that you have this sort of different readership and, and is that reflected in the content itself or is that just you know different people like it at the weekend i mean i think it's that at the weekend people aren't going to want to sit down with hard business news in the same mm. way that they do during the week Obviously, it's often the same writers, but we present it in a very different way. We don't just do business stuff. In fact, that's quite a small percentage mm. of our makeup. We've got a very strong arts team. We do a lot of kind of long form international reporting or social, cultural, health, all that sort of thing. I mean, I think we think we want the same level of intelligence and the same rigor of reporting. Mm. Um, but we want it in a way that you can read over your breakfast table or on the sofa on a Sunday afternoon. And, you know, we know that our readers in the week are quite time poor. Mm. Um, they're not going to want to sit down with 4,000 words, but we hope that they'll see it being promoted and they'll think, oh, yes, I'll save that one for the weekend. Or they'll buy us on the weekend to have that experience. And obviously you were um, a deputy uh, at the FD Weekend magazine before you became editor. What is your sort of... Um, editorial it sounds incredibly fancy and a bit stupid but what is your editorial vision um for the magazine what did you come in wanting um to do my vision <laughs> yes it does sound ridiculous uh, i can't think of a better it, way get of it out every week <laughs> <laughs> and then get the next one out um no i mean i think that i you know sue Mathias, who was the pre previous mm. editor was a fantastic editor and she brought me in and, and nurtured me in many ways and so we both had a vision of offering intelligent, long form, 
a breadth of subjects you know stuff that's beautiful to look at food recipes you want to go and do a real mix of something that caters for everyone in the household at the weekend mm. and I'd say you know we I in particular am um, I'm aware of the fact that the FT's audience is very global mm-hmm. you know we, d- we tend to be quite internationally focused in what we cover um, we don't tend to just do UK stuff you know, we have a fair amount of big name interviews but it's not celebi in mm-hmm. in any way really <laughs> sometimes we maybe could be more celebi <laughs> um, but yeah it's just offering something that challenges people that makes them think that's intelligent and I just think people they don't want dumbed down stuff mm. at the weekends. They want the same stuff they want in the week, but just at a more leisurely pace and, and something that they can explore in a way they maybe couldn't if they were sitting at their desk. I think it's so funny how many, how often long form comes up and people's passion for long form comes up in these conversations. Um, but is there sort of, obviously in a magazine you need sort of a good pace and and rhythm um how do you um balance the sort of the longer pieces you do with the shorter pieces and 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 how does that mix work um in the ft magazine um well writers will always file as much as you give them (laughs) plus a thousand words i find so we're constantly uh you know giving people word counts i mean i think our cover story and our second feature tend Mm. to run fairly long but we have a number of other slots that are designed to be shorter because I completely agree with you. People want a mix of things mm. and they might want a shorter personal essay, which could come in at 1500 words mm-hmm. or something, a column, 800 words, as well as the big 4,000, 5,000 word pieces. We also have a really, really talented photo team here and we do a lot of photography stories, which mm. I think work really well and provide a great break in in the mix. I mean, it's funny because nowadays you're obviously thinking about what works in print and then that's a completely different way of reading to what works online Mm. so you are sort of in a two-track mode all the time in terms of your mix Um, but I do think it's important to have a lot of variety. I'd like to talk a little bit about one of your recent um, longer pieces which is about um, the science of of peanut allergies which I found completely fascinating one of my really good friends um, was incredibly allergic to all kinds of nuts growing up and is now becoming less allergic but I just I found um I found it really interesting could you tell me a little bit more about it how it came about and and what the process was sort of bringing it through the magazine to publication yeah of course well David Crow um who wrote the piece for us is an FT writer and he's a very very good writer and a very good reporter and we've done several things with him in the past although I think this is his his biggest one to date And he came to me with the idea, and like you, I know several people who have allergies, if not peanut, other nuts, other kinds of things. And I think that everyone is just fascinated by the fact that these are such a thing now. And if you have kids, you know, your kids' schools are briefing you all the time on it. It's just something that wasn't around when I was growing up, and everyone wants to know why. And David was saying, well, there are these two potential... um, cures being touted they're both about to go up for fda approval this is a good time to do it we could look at those and it's a great story and i just thought yeah absolutely this is a cover you know i could sometimes you can tell from the beginning this is definitely in fact i could almost just sort of see the peanut on the cover from the beginning (laughs) um and he went off and did it you know it was all in finding the stories obviously finding the scientists but also i mean if you've read the piece you'll know there's a very very sad opening with the mother of a child who dies of a peanut allergy and it's just absolutely I mean when he filed the first draft I started reading it and I actually had (laughs) had to stop because it was the end of the day and I thought I can't this needs more of my attention than I can give it in the next hour um 
and yeah, he just did a fantastic job. And it was interesting because when it went up online, our comments, you know, we had people writing into us saying, make this free. You know, we need this to be, this is actually a public service because people don't know about these things. They don't know about the cures necessarily. That's, it's an area that there's not a huge amount of information available and lots of conflicting things being said. So we did. <laughs> With um, something like that, and I suppose it's a broader issue for the for the FT in general, given what it covers, but how do you steer a line between the kind of technicality that you go into and making something legible for a, you know, a general, well-informed lay reader? Do you have a sort of threshold of... Yeah, we do, absolutely. And it is tricky because obviously we do have quite a specialised readership and, you know, they're very, very smart on all things business. Um, Our weekend readership is slightly different, um, but nonetheless, we don't want to appear as though we're patronising them. But at the same time, we need to make sure that people who aren't business readers and pick something up are aware of, of what's going on. So I do spend quite a lot of time talking to writers about getting that balance right and where to be technical and where to pull back a little bit and give give the bigger picture or get a sort of more general commentary from someone that might be a little bit more illuminating for people who don't know that particular area. And how is the weekend audience different? What's the the demographic of it? Is it is it bigger or? Um, It is a slightly bigger audience than the weekday audience, but it's just a different the overlap of readers is it's just not the same eyeballs, basically. I mean, the actual demographic differences aren't enormously pronounced, at least as far as I know, but it's just not the same. We just know it's not precisely the same viewers, although there is a considerable overlap. Sure. And, and going back to some of the um, specific pieces we were talking about, the, the other one I thought was really interesting was the driverless cars piece. And what I was, the first thing I was interested in looking at that, and I suppose the peanut one, is, is how much of the, the long stuff in the magazine is written by FT writers and how much is from, from external people? And what are the differences you experience? Um, so both the driverless those. trucks piece and the peanut piece are by FT staffers. Sure. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the FT has an amazing correspondent of networks, so we do take advantage of that where we can, and it's great because it means it could be someone in San Francisco or mm. actually David is in New York um, or all over Asia. But we do use freelancers as well. Um, I think with freelancers, it's always a question of finding an area that's not treading on someone who's on staff's beat mm. and finding a story that's, you know, compelling and different enough that I haven't I haven't seen it anywhere else I mean with our with the daily newspaper reporters obviously I'm following their stuff all the time so I can say oh that was a really interesting line so I think it's harder for freelancers because I don't I don't know their stuff I can't say oh explore that avenue a bit more because I'm not seeing it every day but the ones who have done really successful things for me are the ones who come with just an unusual idea and then flesh it out and flesh it out and drill down on how they're going to do it and how they're going to structure it and yeah, we do use them. Sure. What I thought was interesting with the the truckers piece was you know this this whole this area of driverless cars is getting a lot of coverage across all sorts of media. With something, and you've clearly taken a you know a particular area looking at truckers and looking at their stories. Was that a, a deliberate idea to try and find a kind of way into this that is both powerful and human, but also kind of distinct? To yeah, I mean Leslie Hook, who wrote that again, another great FT reporter. So she covers Uber and driverless cars and a lot of that sector Mm. and she's written about it extensively um and she came to me with the trucks idea and we just thought it was great because as you say it is that story but it's just that kind of distilled approach to it and it was just after the election and obviously the the there are something like three million truckers in america and it's a colossal number and the votes of truckers just 
tallied almost exactly with the popular vote in the in the US. Yeah, election. that histogram is extraordinary. Yeah, we had some charts yeah. with it, and so we were just like, these are the people who are voting for Trump, and their industry is about to be completely turned on its head. And on the one hand, you've got the White House talking about how great the truckers are and how wonderful everything is, and on the other hand, you've got Silicon Valley just working to get these people out of their cabs and and what does that mean and what does it mean for all of the not just the people in the actual vehicles but you know the truck stops all over america entire towns set up around this this microculture did you consider the possibility of kind of doing a journey element with that because one thing i thought you know would have been wonderful to be in the cabs say we're driving and kind of crossing ground and things were that yeah. were there access issues uh no yeah. i mean it's interesting you say that there was a plan at one point for a sort of video element to go along with it yeah. of the kind of dashboard camera and it be ju- it just became a bit difficult for technical reasons as far as i can remember i mean leslie the writer did actually go out in some of the trucks okay. but i i think she also just had such rich color from being among them at the truck stops and sort of exploring their cabins and stuff that it was just a question of not everything can go in. Sure. <laughs> and and with, um, I mean, how long is that? It's about four, five? I think four. that was probably four and a half thousand. What are the, with, with length, what is the kind of bracket for the bigger pieces that you go between? I mean, we, I'd say most of our main features come in around four. Okay. Between four and five or three and five. Or we have occasionally extended that if it's a massive investigation or a particularly special piece in some way, we can do a bit more. Yeah. But sadly, we're never going to get to New York length. I'd have to clear the whole mag. <laughs> sure. Um, and do you see with with a piece like that, with kind of molding the the human, you know, as both the pieces we're discussing, they they have human stories and a kind of phenomenon element they're looking at. When you're working with a writer, how do you get them to kind of fuse? Because that's what I find is 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 essentially the magic of magazine writing that you need human and powerful stories that speak to a broader truth or phenomenon. But I find dovetailing those elements is often very challenging. And how do you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) you've hit the nail on the head. I think that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about structure. And in both of those pieces, actually, and I don't think David and Leslie would mind me saying this, you know, there was a certain amount of restructuring that went on because they're both great reporters. They'd got these fantastic voices and they know their beats inside out. So they had all of the analysis. It's just working out how to how to get the two working together. And it is a bit of a dance. Um, I think one of the one of the things that we see most often is people who file stories not not either of these two where there's just not so much of a human voice quotes are quite truncated if you're more used to working in a daily news format you don't necessarily feel the freedom to just give someone's story reign in their own words and that is quite often an editing note that myself or someone on my team will will go back with because to sort of shrug off the the traditional news structure. Yeah, just but. to explore people's voices and let them talk in their own words. And that is the joy of having of having more space. You know, it is the old show not tell thing. Yeah. And I think that there's a reason that that's an adage that's constantly being quoted. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned as a touchstone some of the American stuff, which I think with everyone we speak to in, in British journalism doing this kind of thing, that you know they are looking at what goes on in America. With your the editing process that happens at the magazine, how how many rounds, how many drafts is it? Is it American or British? In <laughs> I think it's probably gosh, I think it's probably a hybrid of the mm. two. I mean, it depends very much on. Because you must know the full American style. I do, style yeah. Newsweek I mean, I've existed in both ecosystems, and I, I'd say that we're probably somewhere in the middle. Um, some, some, you know, we do do a fair few rounds with some of our pieces. I mean, not everyone. Some people, some writers, you know, we just, they're great. They file it. It's pretty much word perfect. We just have to do a fact check. But yeah, often, it's not at all unusual to do three or four rounds of things. And 
I think that that can be it can be tricky but I think that most writers actually really enjoy it because they like being able to to drill down into it and they you know they like being able to argue their case and they definitely do argue their case and I'll argue right back but it always comes out somewhere or normally comes out somewhere that we're both happy with so yeah so we've already talked a little bit about um the process of editing and the sort of the uh, the toing and froing but um I think one thing that our listeners are really fascinated by are what people's um daily lives and jobs um actually entail you know how the pitching um and commissioning processes look from from your through your eyes yeah no that's a a good one I mean I I always prefer to get pictures by email rather than by phone Mm -hmm. because inevitably I always feel so sorry for people who call me up and I'm sort of in a meeting or on deadline and there's no way I can address something that they've obviously been thinking about for ages so you know when an email lands I suppose what we look for is something that's not too long but that is enough to get across an idea of how the story might go mm-hmm. um I actually quite like it when people pitch two or three ideas in mm-hmm. an email I'd say not more than that because then you sort of think well do you actually want to write any of these but Mm -hmm. if it's a couple of different ones then you know sometimes it'll be someone who I'm quite interested in as a writer but it will just they'll happen to pitch on something I've already got on the schedule and then Mm. you feel you feel bad and do you see that as the beginning of a conversation or do you like them to sort of say you know this is the story that I'm pitching these the the people that I'm thinking of speaking to and this is the structure I'm thinking or do you sort of say okay that's an interesting concept but let's you know so go, go away and, and give me more yeah absolutely so if it's a if it's an idea I'm interested in or a person who I'm, I'm interested in getting to write for the magazine it's definitely like the opening step it will then be a question of let's find a good time to talk you know we'll discuss it probe possible angles have a think I mean it's also just it's the boring stuff that no one wants to think about but like the logistics of mm. it you know is there travel involved like Am I going to have to think about travel and accommodation costs on top of other things? What about photography? And actually, that's something that I think is so important for a magazine. Like, if there's not a strong visual, if you don't come thinking about what's the photography going to look like? Could we illustrate it? You know, is there a video component? Those are things that haven't traditionally necessarily been something that writers have had to consider. But I so appreciate it if someone says to me, you know, there's this, this and this, because that for a magazine is how most of our stories work and if there's no pictures then that does make it harder um but yeah then we'll have phone conversations we'll follow up you know often they'll like draft a little something out for me and I'll go back to them and say yeah this is spot on or try a little bit more of this a little bit more of that um it's definitely a long a long process (laughs) and are you quite a collaborative team like would you take a sort of a big feature idea to you know other people in the magazine or or is it sort of quite sort of focused no, we're very collaborative. So we all kind of muck in on everything, really, um, on my desk and also with the visual teams. I mean, we're quite a small team, so it's all hands to the pump quite a lot of the time. And actually, you know, I've always found it to be the case in every magazine I've worked on that often the best headlines and the best ideas come from bits of the team that aren't necessarily the editors. You know, people's minds work in different ways. And sometimes if we've been stuck in thinking about every word of a 3,000, 4,000 word story, we can't see the wood for the trees and someone on the production desk will just be like, oh yeah, this is what it is. And you're like, oh yes, of course, mm. or some such. And obviously um, you hope that a story sort of goes from from pitch to um, to edit and then out in the magazine sort of relatively seamlessly. But as we all know, things can go wrong. And also the, the final 
mix in each individual magazine is quite important. So how many of these stories do you have sort of on the go, kind of maturing like fine wine <laughs> um, before they're ready to be sort we of put in? We always have quite a few. I have sort of recurrent nightmares about waking up. And, like, <laughs> I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my goodness, we've only got two stories in. What happens if X and Y? Mm. So I'm definitely someone who likes to have a bit of a backlog because as you say, the news changes, mm. suddenly that wipes the story out or someone gets ill or you know the photos don't come in. And so we do, we have a lot, so we switch mm. it up. I mean, we'll have, we'll be planning sort of six weeks, two months in advance. Mm. Um, and of course things will change. And if a new story happens and we can react quickly to it, which sometimes we can, because we do have quite mm. short deadlines for a magazine. We do sometimes rip the book up, but at other times it will just be a, oh, I feel that this week, this mix is slightly better. Mm. Um, but everything goes in eventually. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice to have a couple of timeless pieces just yeah, in case. Exactly. Uh, one thing that we try and do the podcast with everyone, um, not just yourself, is, is to talk as frankly as possible about money. Um, and um, you know, feel under no obligation to answer any of these questions. But what do you tend to pay um, for, for freelancers? Um, well, our rates slightly vary depending on you know the experience of the freelancer, whether they've done stuff for us before, their background, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. And to say around forty p a word is our sort of starting. Okay, because I mean, again, this is this is not only a comment germane to, to the FT, but what we often find speaking to, you know, British publications who say like we want to do really ambitious, you know, long form work, but the amounts they're paying are a sort of quarter of, of what the Americans pay for this sort of thing. I mean, it's. I mean, the exchange rate is not in our favour right now. Yeah. I would say it's tricky because you know it, it's a really it's a tough industry, um, and none of us have very much money. I don't think that yeah. that's <laughs> you know a secret to anyone listening. Um, I, you know, if it's an amazing story and we really want it in the magazine and there's a, you know, we'll try everything we can to, to work it out. I mean, without naming names because these stories haven't gone in yet, but you know, I ha currently have freelance writers who are doing big international trips for me, doing big essays, doing, you know, long form stuff. It's, it's not a question of we will never fund that because we mm. do quite routinely, um, but, but there's a distinction between, you know, having budget for expenses and, and ambitious reporting and the actual amount paid for the work itself. And it seems, again, this is not exclusively related to the FT, but talking to British editors, often it um, there's almost, it seems an, uh, like the idea that you would pay someone $2 a word to write a magazine story is, is considered sort of outrageous or, or you know, that whereas, it, and it, it seems almost a, a sort of British notion of what this kind of work is actually worth almost you know yeah because I mean, british newspapers do spend big money on stuff right like on various other bits of the the package and i know, mean i think that's true i think some pay more money than others you yeah. know it depends it depends who you are um and obviously some some value different things i mean yeah i agree with you people get paid less here than they would in the states and mm. that is a cultural difference and it's something that it's tough, like it's really difficult for people. I, I do understand that, but I also would say that we do, you know, we, there are people who will pay a pound a word for, but it sort of depends on, you know, how well I know that story. I mean, how well I know their their work, how impressed I am with the idea. You mm. know, we we work, we work do a lot of work with our writers um, to make sure that we're kind of, everybody's happy. And I would never want to say no to an amazing story because we couldn't, we couldn't pony up the money, but equally, 
it's a t- it is a difficult time. So, and when you're working with with people internally, do you have a sense of of how much of their sort of time is you can take for a magazine project, or they're taking away from their yeah their internal stuff? It's tricky. I was listening to um to one of your podcasts, and someone was saying, "Oh, they're all expected to do this," and I was like, "Yes, that is true at the FT as well." I mean, but we do obviously the most in demand writers are in demand everywhere across the paper, mm. so it is a bit of a case of joining the queue. Um, I mean, the FT is very supportive of the magazine. They like the writers to do these long form pieces. They they like the fact that these are the ones that, you know, go on, do very well, have evergreen lives online. Um, and we do find that if we do a bit of planning and we talk to the desk editors and the writer is quite frank with his or her immediate line manager, you know, we can we can generally carve out the time. And at the, at the same time, again, mentioning no names, um, are there people within the paper who you know, would like to write the magazine stuff but just can't really do it? Does that because no, I mean, again, without uh, talking uh, mentioning <laughs> about other publications, but I know that in other there are other media organisations where like the sort of you know you get this situation where the magazine silo thinks that like that people outside can't do this and it can create quite difficult. No, I mean we're in the opposite situation to that. We have no staff writers on the magazine. We don't yeah. have anybody who's who's just assigned to us. Everybody we use at the FT has another job doing something else. And as a result, we literally use everyone from the editor on down. I mean, I'm really lucky in that there's, I don't feel there's anyone in the building who I can't approach. It may be that they say, no, I'm writing a book or no, I'm doing this, but there's no sense of, oh no, he would never do a magazine piece. Um, okay. I don't I don't think I've found that. Oh, is there a sense of, uh, what I was kind of saying is people who, who maybe can't do it, not won't, who just can't make that shift across. Oh, what you mean who, from who, a writing perspective? Yeah, from a writing perspective. Um, I think there are some people who are more, Obviously, there are some people who are more natural at it than others and more relaxed with it. And there are definitely writers at the FT who, you know, they could pitch me on anything. And I would say yes, because they're so talented that I know it will be great. And there are definitely people who I work a bit more with. But actually, sometimes I do find that the ones where you've worked really quite hard to get it into shape are quite rewarding. Because then the next time they come back, it's a bit less work. And then you've got a whole other great writer. <laughs> you've talked a little bit about um, how international uh, the FT is. And... I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that international mix in your online readership and, and, and what sense you have of how international it is, where your readers are reading from and and how they're reading and sort of yeah. through which medium. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that's massively changed over the last decade is analytics. Like mm. I, I remember actually back when I was working on blogs on the times being obsessed with the stats but it was very rudimentary and i'm still obsessed with the stats like i had to give up our analytics program for lent because i was literally just <laughs> watching people's things but it is amazing because you know the one that we have which i'm sure is replicated in many other places is you know you really can tell people coming from social media are they coming from mm. the u.s you can see the spike in the morning when the u.s wakes up you can see asia going to bed like you can literally track everything and that mm. is i mean you don't want to become as obsessed with it as I was at a various point. You know, it's just <laughs> one bit of the information. But it is incredibly useful to have that. And we do think about that. And it does, you know, we're just very aware that we we have all of these different audiences. So if we're going to write something on, you know, internal fighting in the Tory party, which we often do, you know, we just are aware that we need to cast that for an international audience. And why is that relevant for people outside of Whitehall? Um it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily limit what I what I would commission, but it does limit how we would present it. 
And if you know that a particular story is likely to get sort of a lot of traction online, how, or through social media, how important is that in the kind of commissioning process? Are, are you thinking, you know, this is going to play really well on social media or, and so we could have part, that as part of the mix or does it not really inform, inform your no, commissioning? No, we definitely do think about that. I mean, I wouldn't say that we've, we necessarily always know. It's quite hard to tell. Mm. You know, you get the sleeper hits where you're like, oh God, I never expected. So for example, there was an amazing piece last week, two weekends ago on the Catalan, upcoming Catalan referendum. Mm. And it was beautifully written, really great writer. I have never been retweeted by more Catalan regional activists in my life. And I never saw that coming. I didn't think, oh, this is going to be a social (laughs) media thing. So I think that we always do think about it. A lot of planning goes into how we present our stuff on social media. But I wouldn't commission something just because I thought it was going to be a surefire hit because that Mm. does sometimes backfire and you don't want to commission a a bad piece just for that reason. Then you fall a little bit into clickbait territory. Mm -hmm. And do you find that um, your long form pieces do, I mean, from using the analytics, how, you know, what's the readership like for online versus the shorter piece? I mean, for long form versus the shorter pieces. And is there sort of a a difference in in readership or, or appetite at different times for different lengths? I think our long form pieces do in fact, I know our long form pieces do really, really well online. I mean, the things like time spent on page, you know, there's a piece that's just gone up yesterday and there's like readers are spending like four minutes on page with it, which is a really long time. And you can track how far down they get and they're all pretty much getting like 75% of the way down, which when you average it out means that most of them are, you know, probably getting pretty much to the end. I mean, it's actually been great as someone who loves long form journalism and has made her career in it. Mm. Like, it's hugely validating to Mm. be able to see on these analytics things that there is an appetite for this, that people read it, that they're reading it on the tube in the morning, they're reading it on the tube in the evening, you know, and they go the whole way down it and they will spend a lot of time, they'll Mm. really engage with it. And that's, I mean, yeah, as I say, it's it's very rewarding for us and explains my obsession with the stats. Um, and very rewarding for me because that was precisely the answer I was angling for. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> I know we'll have a lot of people who are regular listeners who love long form and will be delighted to hear you say, uh, as someone who knows the stats intimately, <laughs> that uh, there's a lot of appetite for it. I realise I forgot a question from earlier on. I, you, you mentioned briefly earlier your um, the, the kind of time the time cycles and the deadline structure. Mm. Could you talk a bit about how that works for in terms of just what the rhythm the, the, the rhythm of production closes? And, yeah. yeah, we go to press on a Wednesday morning um, for a Saturday publication, so it's quite a short uh, window. And I think actually a lot of the other UK magazines have a slightly longer one. So yeah. sometimes I feel that we you know that's a, that's a big advantage, although. So, for example, when Margaret Thatcher died, we were able to to rip up that mag and put in an essay by Simon Sharma on that, and that was great. Of course, the person has to die at the right time, on the right <laughs> day of the week, so that's not always the case. A, a previous guest on the podcast, Jonathan Beckman of 1843, said that he... Uh, He's, his first job was working on the book's desk at the Observer, and he said there could only be a crisis there if Philip Roth died on a Friday evening. So. <laughs> yeah, that is. I do sometimes think like that, and of course there have been times where we've published something and something's happened in the intervening two days, and you're just like, ooh. But that's part of magazine journalism. You just have to put up with it. Um, but no, so it's quite tight. Um, you know, we have a sort of mad beginning of the week where we're rushing to get all of the pages to press, and then the end of the week's a little bit more friendly for commissioning, editing, talking through visual ideas working out how the next month or so is going to play um so that's the kind of if you catch me on a thursday or friday i'm likely to be significantly more relaxed i'd say and and how big is the team um there are 12 of us across the across the desk that's the visual production and editors so not as big as the new york times magazine yeah i look at their masthead in envy (laughs) well it's interesting actually i um i was on this 
writer's residency earlier in the year in the US and at the place they had all these National Geographics from the 60s and I looked at the masthead and I was like what what on earth yeah you just keep going I know I know we wanted to ask as well actually um, a question about like particularly with the financial crisis and with all that happened did you feel that the sort of the the FT coverage that wasn't hard news so the weekend paper the, the weekend magazine how to spend it did that did it have to undergo some kind of existential thing when I mean the fact that how to spend it still sort of existed was there ever any to be honest you're not asking the right person because I wasn't here then sure um so I don't know but you know how to spend it's a very valued part of the FT's publications um I I mean the the financial crisis you know the FT rose quite well to that challenge I think it won best paper that year as it as it should have done um but I, I have to say I didn't arrive until a couple of years after that fact so yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that, that, that's fine. Thank you for um, taking the time and for such fascinating answers. Oh, um, no, no worries. Thank yeah, you very much, much for having me. Much appreciated. Okay, bye. It's us again with a swift update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to? Uh, very um, little except for scrupulously colour coordinating and highlighting my notes for the next two chapters. Um, there's, there's not much writing being done, but the notes are looking beautiful. I can confirm that because we're currently in Cassie's writing shed, which is uh, decked with coloured uh, coloured stickers. Um, I <laughs> have been doing uh, additional reporting for my book as I wait to get the edit back, so filling in the gaps with that um, and waiting to hear about covers. Uh, no, no firm word on that. So uh, yeah, just ticking along really. Other um, highlighter sticky aficionados will be pleased to, to hear that I bought um, a multi-pack of 1,400 highlighter stickies recently, so I won't be running out anytime soon. We'll see Cassia through at least the next 10 days. Um, <laughs> this has been Always Take Notes. Uh, it is hosted by me, Cassie Sinclair, and by Simon Aiken. Our producers are Olivia Cralin, Ed Kiernan, and Liz, Liz Davies. Music is by Jess Danheiser. Social media is looked after by Zara Hankier. And our graphic design was done by James Edgar. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And please do stop by iTunes and give us a review. It really helps and we'd be very grateful. Mm-hmm.